This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We have been talking for a number of weeks uh, about what it means to follow Jesus. I've um, been sending emails out to you um, five days a week, uh, hopefully helping you uh, learn who you are in Christ through the book of Ephesians and help your prayer time. Um, I was, I was kind of troubled by this as I was preparing this message because I thought that if I did this in here or basically any church I've ever belonged to, and I asked you to raise your hand if you're a follower of Jesus. Almost everybody in here would raise our hand. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. And then if I followed up with the question, well, what does that exactly mean? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? We would have a tendency of interpreting that through American Christianity, through the, the culture in which we live. Following Jesus means that I have made a verbal affirmation to adhere to the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay, but what does that mean? Uh, That means, and we call doctrine now, that means he uh, was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life and died on the cross vicariously for my sins. And uh, it was was like 40 days he he went around after that proving he was alive. And then he ascended up into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and someday he's going to come again. Okay, that's doctrine. Very important. That's truth. But what does that mean? How do we flesh that out? What does it mean on a day-by-day basis, in and out, everything that we do, what does it mean to follow Christ? Well, um, it means that I need to come to church, and I need to read my Bible, uh, have a devotion in the morning, and if we're really committed, we do something like Spurgeon's morning and evening, and and I'll also read at night, and uh, I'll tithe, and and I'll I'll do some sort of charitable act, and I'll try to, to tone my sin back and and reel in my my moral freedom to to live according to some sort of biblical moral code and i'll forgive more i'll try harder sound familiar but what did it mean when jesus said to peter and to andrew and to james and john to the apostle paul to to us and to those back then what does it truly mean to follow Christ. Now, we've been talking about this for a couple weeks, so we're going to be digging a little deeper into it. We're just looking at the text at Matthew, and then I'm going to bring Luke and John, or uh, Mark and Luke in also. This is the classic passage of what it means to follow Christ. It ends with, uh, you know, you will follow me. There are requirements. It's like an if-then proposition. It says that Jesus says to his disciples, if, if. It doesn't mean it's for everybody. Everybody might not even want to do this, but if you desire this. And we talked about the word desire a couple weeks ago and all that's involved in it. We spent almost a whole Sunday just on that word desire, how it means more than just fanciful thinking. It means more than a wish or a dream or a whim. It means to desire something, but put the effort behind it to see it takes place. I you know, I, I work as a dairy clerk at Walmart, and I don't want to do this anymore. Instead, I want to be a lawyer. 
I desire to be a lawyer. Well, what does that mean? I got to go to night school. I have to, you know, work my eight hours, take my time with my family, and then all my vacation time and all my free time is tied up in studying to be able to take the exam to get into law school. It's a desire that that presupposes action and will and volition behind it. If anyone desires and you're willing to do something about it to come after me, what are we supposed to do? Let him deny himself. Hardest part here. First requirement, hardest part. How do we deny ourselves when we live in a narcissistic society? How do we deny ourselves when everything is about us? And, you know, I'm almost 65 years old. When I was younger, we didn't have the Internet and all that kind of stuff. We actually didn't have emails. We actually had phones that were attached to the wall. Uh, remember those? Never lost them. You always knew where they were. Um, you know, we, it, it was a little bit different. It was, it, I don't know, there, there wasn't that opportunity to make us sell our, ourselves feel self-important. We didn't have selfies. We didn't post things on the Internet. We didn't become an influencer by taking dumb pictures of us or, or stuff of that nature. And I mean, just the ability to develop narcissism wasn't as prevailing as it is now. I mean, social media we're going to find in the years to come is evil, you know, because it makes the center of everything me. But the scripture says the center of everything cannot be me. As a matter of fact, I have got to be downgraded to the point that I must deny myself. I don't know what that means. How do we do that on a day-by-day basis? How do I deny myself with my wife and my family and my friends and and just the decisions that I make. How do I deny myself at work? And and to what degree do I deny myself? Oh, really simple. To the point of death. An excruciating, horrific, painful death. Everybody knew. Everybody knew by experience what the cross meant back then. Because they'd seen people writhing in pain or their dead bodies riding on crosses all over Jerusalem, in and out as they traveled during the holiday dates. I mean, the Romans used these public executions as a way to, to beat down dissension. Everybody knew what a cross meant. We think it's something we kind of put on a, a car or wear around our neck or it's kind of like an, an icon. But to them, it was an instrument of the ultimate denial of life. If anyone desires to come after me, and maybe not everybody, maybe not you have that desire, but for those people who truly want to be a follower of Christ, he says, this is what you must do. Number one, you must deny himself. You must take up your cross. And after those two things are accomplished, follow me. Question, why is that so hard? Why are you making this so difficult? Can't we just you know, quietly in our seat and nobody looking around and all eyes closed and heads bowed, just kind of raise our hands and make some sort of silent acknowledgement of Christ so just the pastor will see and then we're okay and nobody else will know? Can it be like that? No. Whoever desires, I don't have a desire to follow Christ and deny myself and I have a desire to save my life and if I do, I will be the ultimate loser. I will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. As I've shared with you for the last couple of weeks, when you have a passage like this, this is this profound and this black and white and just cuts deep against the grain of everything we've known as, as believers in Christ and what church is all about today, I feel uncomfortable just taking it from one gospel writer. So I want the totality 
of everything the Holy Spirit said about this statement as recorded by the other gospel writers. And so we looked at the Matthew account, the Mark account, and the Luke account, and we put all those together, and we find out there's a little bit more information given. For example, in Matthew it says he's just talking to his disciples. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That means it's not for me. I'm not part of the 12. That's for somebody else. Oh, I get it. So I can just live lukewarm and only those special people that he anointed for that, those people can, can live this following of Jesus kind of life. No, that's, that's not what he says. He says, in the end, he says, then Jesus, Mark says, called the people to himself. Everyone, the entourage, all the people that are listening. Luke says, and he said to them all. So I can no longer hide behind the disciple word. Now it's point blank in my face. He said to them all, Mark, with his disciples also. So there's the disciples. There's all of us, the entourage. Everyone is hearing this message. Back to Matthew. And he says, if, if anyone, not just the disciples, not just the people that make a lot of money or been able to go to seminary, but if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross, like one time, like at a revival meeting. Like, like yes, I'll take up my cross, Christ. I checked that off my bucket list and we're done. Daily. Daily. And, and I, I share with you last week, for me, it's almost hourly. I have to do this. Take up his cross daily. Back to Matthew and follow me. Why? Continuing in Matthew. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, Mark adds, and the gospel's sake, will find it. Will find it. My sake and the gospel's sake. Now, let me tell you why this is important. We um, are Greeks. We are Gentiles. We're we're not Jews by nature. And there's a, a totally different mindset between how the... Hebrews and the Jews interpreted scripture and how the Greeks do. You know, the Greeks are all about us. We're all about thinking and the enlightenment. I think, therefore, I am. And I want to process that in my mind. How do I feel about this? Or what should I do about that? Well, I need to come to a cognitive understanding first. And once I gather that in my mind, then I can determine what action it is. Hebrews viewed it completely different. For example, when Jesus would say, go into all the world and preach the gospel, To a Hebrew, you know what that means? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. It means get up and go and preach. It means to do something. If you'll notice, the Great Commission uh, was given, the Acts chapter 1 passage was given, and most of the Christians that were there were former, matter of fact, all the Christians that were there were former Hebrews. And so when they heard that message, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the rest of the world, that meant go. Get off your horse, or get on your horse, and go. That's what missions is all about from a Hebrew perspective. But we're Gentiles. And as Gentiles, it means, no, it doesn't mean to go. It just means to think about going. For example, in most churches, uh, every year, they're going to have a mission conference. We're going to devote two weeks to missions. So what do we do? We bring missionaries in, and they show us artifacts and a slideshow and tell us all about the things God is doing in Indonesia or Bolivia or some other thing. We all come, and we learn about missions, and, oh, we get to touch a little 
uh, artifacts here, and I've got a pamphlet that talks about this mission organization, and then we go home and nothing changes. Well, how's your church with missions? Oh, it's great. We had a missions conference. I learned so much about missions. I feel like I'm fulfilling the Great Commission because it's just in my brain. It's not actually doing. Does that make sense? When it comes to following Christ, we end up with the same kind of mentality. I want to understand what the words mean. I want to understand how they interrelate to some of the other Gospels. I want to see pictures in the the New Testament and maybe in church history of other people who have followed Christ. But as far as my life goes, I'm pretty much set. Pretty much kind of doing what I'm doing. And church never gives us pressure for not doing that. As a matter of fact, the church in America today almost applauds lukewarmness and apathy because someone who's not like that makes us all feel guilty. True? In the Philadelphia church age, which the church age in which you had these great missionary movements that took place, it was because the church at that time, the primary Gentile church at that time, beginning to take, beginning to take the word of God literally for what it said. If you will read about these great missionaries, they're in a conference or they're hearing about a need and they've got their own life. They're in school or they're pastoring a church or they're working in a a secular job and they hear about this need in a foreign country. They see the the admonition that Christ gives, the commands to go, and that's exactly what they did. They sacrificed everything and they went and we applaud those people as heroes in the Philadelphia church age. Well, we now live in the Laodicean church age, which means it's not about them. It's all about us. And we think, as the scripture says, that we don't need anything because we're rich and we're happy. And and the Lord says, don't you realize from his perspective how wretched, poor, and blind we are? Remember? So as we're looking at what it means to follow Christ, don't think about it like we've always thought about it, like, Oh yeah, that's, that's a, that's a neat concept. I think I'll maybe incorporate a little bit of that into my life. Think about it for what it truly is. It's a command of Christ and a requirement to follow Him. So, how do we determine that? Um, no way I'm going to get through all this today. And what we normally do is we take a passage and we dig deep on it to try to determine what it says. But today what I'm going to do is kind of do a flyover of a passage. I, I want to. I want us to take some time and just try to understand what it means to live in His kingdom. You know, we talk about that. Jesus came, and His message was the same as John the Baptist: "The kingdom of heaven is at hand." Well, what does that mean? I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you what the kingdom of heaven is like. I'm going to show you by the way I live, by what I say. I'm going to show you about how faith is to be manifest. Jesus says, I'm going to present to you the kingdom. Later on, he gives these kingdom parables so we can understand how important it is to live in his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like, I don't know, I don't know, like a, like a man who found a treasure buried in a field. And because that treasure, the kingdom, was so great, he liquidated everything he had, sold every dime to buy that field and get that treasure. Why? Because that treasure is more important than anything, his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who's, whose job is it to find nice pearls. And when he finds this one pearl, this, oh my gosh, this, this pearl beyond comprehension, he sells everything he has to get that one pearl, which is the kingdom of God. What is life like in his kingdom? 
Now listen, here's the hard part. Um, you and I are citizens. I don't know if you phrase it. Bad word. You and I exist in a kingdom that doesn't belong to Christ. This is Satan's world. It's Satan's domain. As a matter of fact, one of the temptations that Jesus had is Satan said, you know, showed him all the kingdoms of all the world that belong to him and says, they are mine to give to whoever I want. I will give them to you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus did not say, no, you don't. You don't have those kingdoms like me trying to sell you the Empire State Building. No, you don't. He simply said, I'll not do that and I'll not worship anyone other than the Lord. We live under the rules of flesh and under the rules of Satan. Somebody hurts you, you hurt them back. Somebody, you know, somebody hurts your family member and we're commanded to somehow forgive them. But if they continually hurt our family member, no way. We're knocking them out. We're done. We're finished. Did someone take something from me? No, my righteous indignation says I need to snatch that back. And we have a whole legal profession that helps us do that. That what I want is most important. What my desires are that God gave me a mind and he expects me to use it. So therefore, I'm going to ask God to bless what I want to do rather than subjecting my mind to the mind of Christ. The rules in God's kingdom are totally different than any of the rules that you and I have learned to exist under in this world our whole life. I mean, they almost seem ridiculous. Some of them seem masochistic. You know, when someone smites you on the one cheek, instead of laying them out, we turn to them the other. I mean, who does that? That's ridiculous. When somebody compels me to do something they have no right to do, like a Roman soldier compelling me, which was the custom at that time. I had to carry his armor for a mile as a Jew, as a, as a Jew under Roman authority. At the end of the mile, instead of throwing it to the ground and saying, my obligation is done, instead I carry it another mile. Why? Because I can. Because I want to bless my oppressor. Does that make any sense to you? None. How do you live like that? If you live like that, you'll be absolutely taken advantage of by everybody, our world says. Kingdom of God sees things differently. When Jesus begins his ministry, the first thing he does in the book of Matthew is he spends three chapters explaining to them exactly what life in the kingdom is about. He shows them some magnanimous things, but then he wants to teach them these are the rules. These are how we live. If you want to follow God, the first thing that comes with that, of course, is a blessing. Psalm 1 talks about how blessed is the man who does not follow the kingdom of the world, does not walk or sit or stand in the, in the presence of the ungodly or scornful, but his delight is the law of the Lord, and he meditates on that law day and night. Jesus amplifies that by what we call the Beatitudes. And I just want you to look at it really quick in Matthew chapter 5. There are blessings that are laid out. Blessings are the one who pays his house off. Blessing is the one who able to, to sock all his money away. Blessed is the one who has the huge house or a huge family. Or, or blessed is the one that has perfect health and perfect teeth and a car that never breaks down. Blessed is the man who starts from nothing and lifts himself up by his own bootstraps and creates in himself something to be proud of. Well, okay. But Jesus didn't mention any of those. None of those. 
Instead, the blessings are different. Blessings of the poor in spirit. I can't do it. I'm destitute. I've got nothing. Blessed are those who mourn, who are broken because of their sin, because of the corruption in the world, because of our lost loved ones. Blessed are the meek, those people who have the ability to be different, to to force their will upon others, but choose not to. It's like strength restrained. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst not for acceptance in a sinful world, but for righteousness. Righteousness. Blessed are those people who live by justice. No. Blessed are those people who are merciful. Blessed are those people who have to to work situations out in in the best way to, to benefit them. No. Blessed are those people who are pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for being different than everybody else. I mean, does that make any sense to you at all? What is this kingdom he's talking about? And then the the rewards for the blessing have nothing to do with this life. They have nothing to do with money or fame or acceptance or health or anything that we spend our life on. Nothing. They have nothing to do with the with what's transitory. They, they only have to do with what's eternal. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You shall be comforted. You shall inherit the earth. You shall receive blessings on and on and on. I mean, how is that even possible? Jesus says, you want to follow me? These are the rules of my kingdom. Yeah, but but what about me? We talk all about self-identity and self-awareness. And if you can't love you, you can't love others. You remember that? I I get beat down so much by just life in general. And and, who am I, Lord? Who am I? I mean, who am I that that people would would, would like me and love me? And I just want to be surrounded by people that, that care about me. Well, I got that. In a narcissistic society, it's all about you and your self-identity. In God's kingdom, he changes that identity. So, who are you? Verse 13. Here's who you are. You are the salt of the earth. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. Your identity is no longer tied up with husband and wife or grandfather or mother or this particular employee or profession that we have or the amount of money that we have or, or anything like it, a building named after us or some sincerely held conviction. My identity is to be a preservative, a purifier in the earth, to be able to have the light that shines in darkness. And, and, and how much so is that to happen in his kingdom? Verse 16, to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I don't know. um, They didn't tell me that when I signed up for this. I just thought I had to come down the aisle and shake a pastor's hand, recite some historical facts, believe some doctrine, and then everything would be okay. It is in our church age. It's not when you really... Think about what it means to be a follower of Christ. 
I, I don't have a lot of good works. I mean, um, sometimes I do good things. Sometimes I do bad things. Most of the time I do things I'm not really proud of. I kind of live in this lukewarm kind of area. I mean, what is his standard of righteousness? I mean, how, how much like him am I to be? Verse 20. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, which were the most righteous according to works of the flesh people ever on planet Earth. Ever. Their heart wasn't into it, but their outer actions were conformed to a set of 612 laws that they came up with. It says, you will no by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So my righteousness isn't anything I can do. No. It's imputed to you. It's given to you. That when I recognize, blessed are those who mourn because of my um, inability to be all Christ wants to be. Blessed are those who are beggarly in spirit. They will be the ones that will be received the power and indwelling of the Holy Spirit that allows you to be everything he wants you to be. It's all based on desire. I can't do it on my own. I can't muster it up on my own. The best I could possibly be, according to Jeremiah, is filthy rags. But if I have a desire to yield myself to him, to receive from him sanctification and wisdom and love and redemption and forgiveness, then he, as a vine attached to, or as a branch attached to the vine, he, through his resources, will allow me to bear his fruits of righteousness. My job is to just stay connected. So the kingdom of heaven isn't about me being on some treadmill, just running faster and faster and faster, trying to check off the box and pleasing an angry God. No. The kingdom of God is surrendering, denying myself in order to let Christ grow large and seeing the wonderful things he does in my life. I know, but you don't understand the world in which we live. I mean, if, if I if I exist in light and darkness, if, if if I if I talk to my family members about Christ, or I actually say, you know, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. What 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 you're asking me to do, or what we've always done in the past, is offensive to my Lord, and I'm not going to offend Him any longer. It will cause controversy. It will cause persecution. They're going to get angry at me, and not only that, I'm going to get angry at them for the things that they are saying. But how am I supposed to deal with that emotion in your kingdom, God? Verse 21. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. Never done that, Lord. Never murdered at all. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But you're living in my kingdom now. And my kingdom is not ruled by just external actions. My kingdom is ruled by the condition of your heart that leads to those external actions. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, or stupid head is what it really means in the Hebrew or the Greek, you shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, should be in danger of hell fire. So, so I'm not to be I'm not to be angry with him, not because he hasn't done anything bad to me. 
and he hasn't taken any responsibility for what he's done for me, and he hasn't owned up to the hurt he's caused in my life, but I'm commanded not to be angry at him because of my relationship with you, because you're not angry with me, because you have forgiven me. Okay. Okay. So how does my anger relate to my relationship with you? Really simple. Verse 23. Therefore, with this whole anger issue behind us, if you bring your gift to the altar and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, stop worshiping me in vain. Stop trying to do penance. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way first to be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So there is a connection between me being angry with someone who you died for, who probably is part of the mission field that you placed me in, and my even bringing my sacrifices and offerings to you. Yes, living in my kingdom is not about showy kind of bringing offerings and and making adulation and great proclamations of how good I am publicly. My kingdom is about your relationship with the hardest people on the planet for you to get along with. And you love them because I love you. You guys ready to bail now? I am. I was ready to bail last last thing we looked at. Uh, That's unfair. I don't want to do this because I have rights. I, you know, they to hurt me. And so therefore I've got this fleshly thing to hurt them back or worse than that to shun them and push them away so they'll never hurt me anymore. And you know what? Then we take the, we take the magnanimous view. It's okay if you hurt me, but if you hurt my children, it'll be different. There's no distinction here. No distinction. How do we, how do we love like that? I'm salt and I'm light and I've died and he now lives in me. And as a dead corpse, I don't have any feelings anymore. All I want is to be connected to him. Okay, the anger I can handle. But do you, do you know how prevalent porn is on the internet? Do you, do you know when I get together with all my guy friends, you know, all they talk about is, is other women and stuff of that nature? And do you know when these girls get together, when they judge a man, they judge a man by how well his jeans fit and not necessarily by the character of his heart? I mean, everything's sold that way. Well, what am I supposed to do in this sex, sin, saturated society? Verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you now shall not commit adultery. I would never do that. I will never consummate that act with a woman who's not my wife. Okay. But then it's okay to look at porn. Or better than that, it's okay to look at sexually suggestive things on television that maybe don't gravitate to the point of full nudity, but nevertheless is still offensive to him. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Already. Well, how big a deal is this, Lord? I mean, I mean, what are you talking about? What is it? Is it that important to you? Verse twenty. If your right eye that you're now looking at this woman with causes you to sin. Pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that you should, that one of your members should perish than your whole body be cast into hell. 
Again, I want you to imagine the imagery of that. I mean, if some man was walking in here with a patch on his eye, and you, what, what happened? You're, oh, I ripped my eye out, uh, and I just had this open cavity in my head right now. But by doing so, God cured me, because I only have one eye left, cured me of all sexual sins. We would have that person locked up. Really? What, are you crazy? Why can't you just struggle with it like I do my whole life and, and give into it and ask for forgiveness? Because I want to follow him. Because he said that, that it's so important to him for living in his kingdom that we have to be light in darkness. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Okay. Then if I don't look at other women, then it means I have to look at the woman I'm married to. And she annoys me. I mean, she's she's irritating. She's she's like this, like in Proverbs, she's like this cantankerous woman on a roof that keeps dripping on top of my head. So I want to scream like a Chinese water torture. Or we could flip that around and say the husband was that way. I mean, the husband is like this abusive guy. He gets beat down in the world out there and comes home and takes it out on me. I mean, I'm done. God didn't call me to live in a relationship like this. And everybody else gets divorces for every possible reason. Not in God's kingdom. Talking about divorce here. We're not necessarily talking about co-inhabiting. Marital relationships. Verse 31. Furthermore, has been said, whoever divorces a wife, let him go to some attorney, pay 350 bucks, say we're incompatible or unreconcilable differences, sign the documents, work out the property settlement, we are done. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Because it's important to him. It's a covenant relationship. Okay. All right. Well, what else is there? Well, how about innate honesty? How about the fact that people trust you at your word? I always, always, always thought this was funny. I'm sorry, funny is a bad word. Sad. When somebody's telling you something and you look at them kind of funny and they say, no, I swear to God. So I swear, I swear on, I don't know if you're Italian, I swear on my grandchildren's eyes or something crazy. like I, I swear, I swear, I swear I'm telling you the truth. Why are you doing that? Because your character has been such that you know I don't believe you because you've lied before, you've misled other people before. So now you're having to add all these superlatives to it to somehow Make me believe what you're saying is true. But if your character was that of a follower of Christ, I would believe that everything you said was true. And there's no need for you to add, I swear, I swear, I swear, you got to believe me. Of course I believe you. Why would I not believe you? I've known you your whole life. You never once lied to me. You never once tried to deceive me. You've never once taken advantage of me. You live just like Christ. Of course I believe you. But if we don't live that way, we have to throw these things in. Verse um, 33. Again, I say, as you have heard, you shall not bear false witness, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Well, it's not really false witness, it's business. I'm a used car salesman. I mean, if I told them everything that was wrong with the car, answered every question that they had honestly, I'd never make any sales. You get another job. Well, it's not really, and I'm not really lying to them. I'm just not necessarily telling them all the truth. 
or I, I'm, I am telling the truth, but I'm telling it in such a way that kind of defames their character, so I kind of stick it to them, even though I'm not technically lying. You remember the old phrase we talked about a couple of years ago, by emphasizing different words, you can communicate a different message in a sentence. And the sentence was, I did not say he beat his wife. Remember? And by emphasizing each of those, it can change the total meaning of that. I didn't say he beat his wife. You did. I didn't say. He might have implied it, posted on Facebook, but I didn't say. I didn't say he beat his wife. His neighbors did, his brothers did, but, but I did. He didn't beat his wife. He just kind of pushed around a little bit. And we got to change it all around by what we emphasize. Hey, Steve, um, uh, I got a, um, a, heavy, a friend of yours is uh, applying for a job, and they uh, put you down as a reference. And so I have to ask you just a couple questions if you can verify this about your friend. Well, they're not really my friend. They really kind of irritated me. I'm kind of angry at them, and I really don't want them to be blessed because their job's paying more than my job is. But yes, I need to be honest here. So, okay, what is your question? Uh, has your friend here ever been convicted of a felony? I don't think he was convicted. I answered it honestly, did I not? And kept him from getting the job. I mean, we all live that way because it's expected in our world. And Jesus says, no. Verse 34, but I say to you, do not swear at all either by heaven or by God's throne or by the earth or his footstool by Jerusalem, none of that. Nor can you swear by your head or anything. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more of these is from Satan, is from the evil one. Speaking of the evil one, um, how, am I, how am I supposed to respond to evil? Lord, if I'm living in your kingdom then how much am I supposed to take care of myself? Or how much do I trust you? You remember, we talked a lot about what the word doulos meant as a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about something that's very foreign to all of us because we don't live in a caste system. We don't live, we have a feudal lord and, and we're slaves or servants or stuff of that nature. We don't have anybody except maybe a judicial system that can forcefully take things away from us. We're pretty much masters of our own fate, so it's hard for us to understand how this works. But as a doulos, as a bond slave, which Paul and Peter and uh, the rest of the apostles pretty much declared they were the Lord Jesus Christ, it meant that I have a sovereign Lord, and it's his job to take care of everything. A slave did not go out and try to make money outside of what was provided for him by his master. Because you're independent of me, you can't be independent of me. Everything that you make belongs to me. The children that you have belong to me. The wife that I've given you belongs to me. The home that you have belongs to me. Everything about you belongs to me. And we claim that verbally. Yes, Lord, everything that I have belongs to you, but it doesn't. It doesn't. We treat it like it's all our own. Somebody mistreats a slave. It's not the slave's job to... To maintain his own honor? He has no honor. He's a slave. He's a servant. It's the master's job. You do not touch my slave. My servant speaks for me. If you, if you chastise my servant, then you will have to deal with me. That's life in the kingdom. It just feels so uncomfortable for us today because it makes us seem like milk toast. And we're the, at least I am, I'm the John Wayne Rambo kind of guy. We'll kind of take it all ourselves. 
Look what he says here, verse 38. When it comes to responding to evil. You have heard it said, you respond to evil. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They send one of yours to the hospital. You send one of theirs to the morgue. Not the way Jesus says. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Why? Because our king and our protector and our God is powerful. Whatever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. That's a forceful situation. What am I supposed to do voluntarily? Give to him who asks you and who wants to borrow from you. You do not turn away. Really? Why? Because I will provide all your needs. Talks about that in Matthew 6.33. I have many more of these. As we go through the Justice Sermon on the Mount. One after another, after another, after another, after another. And then we get to this one. Do not be the kind of man, chapter 7, who builds his house on the sand. Build it on the rock. Don't be stupid. Think what you're supposed to do. Chapter 8. Jesus then rolls out and he begins healing this person who was crippled and Peter's mother-in-law and the centurion were to minister and reach out within the people that are placed around us. And then we realize that everything costs something. Living in his kingdom. We'll turn to Matthew 8. I'll just show you this one. Verse 18. When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he came and departed to the other side of Galilee. And a certain scribe came to him and says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, Really? Do you understand what you're asking? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't have a home here. This is not my home. This is not my kingdom. Jesus says, You know, if it was my kingdom here, my servants would be taken it by force, but my kingdom is not here. It's in the hearts of men. That we live as light in a dark kingdom because someday and very soon he will come back and throw out the usurper and establish his kingdom. Another's disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and pray to my father. But Jesus said, or bury my father. And Jesus says, as important as that is, let the dead bury the dead. Would you come and follow me? The Luke account talks about a man putting his hand to the plow and looking back. It's not worthy of service to the kingdom of God. Following Christ means to forget everything we know about everything except him and just trust him, to line our life up with his word. Because we live in a totally different kingdom. I'm going to... um, I just want you to turn to James 1. I'll read a couple of verses here, and then we'll call it a day. James 1. This is what life is like in the kingdom. We'll begin in verse number 2. You're in the kingdom. James says, My brethren, count it all joy. Be giddy about it when you fall into various trials. 
no, I'm, I'm like I'm like hanging on to the blessings here. You told me that I would have a bunch of blessings, and now you're telling me I'm supposed to be giddy when I face trials. Yeah, because you're thinking horizontally, and I'm thinking vertically. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Patience is a virtue God wants you to have through your trials. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I don't understand that. That makes no sense to me. Well, it's because you lack wisdom. If you lack wisdom, verse 5, let him ask God who gives all to all liberally and without reservation, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of a sea driven and tossed by the wind. But let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all, circle all his ways. That's how we think. I don't, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't want to accept that, God. I want to be able to be masters of my own fate. I want to be able to choose my own life. I want to be able to raise my standard of living or where I want to do or what I want to do to my life to where I want it to be because I want to call all the shots. Because if you ask me to downgrade what I have right now, I'm going to be discontent with everything. Verse 8, that the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Really? And the rich in his humiliation. Why? Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. But no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. The flower falls and his beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will, will fade away in his pursuits. Because it's not about temporal stuff in his kingdom. It isn't ours. It isn't mine. But it's not about it is. It's about him. I know, Lord, but I'm, I struggle with that. I, I struggle with wanting more and, and working harder. And if I, if I just put 50 and 60 and 70 hours at work, then they're going to reward me with the corner office and the company car and the paid vacations. I know, but I have a responsibility to my wife and kid. I know, but I, I don't get any attaboys being with them, but I get all these attaboys at work. And, and my culture says that's most important. And I feel conflicted. I feel tempted. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. But when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Well, Lord, it's not fair. I mean, it's the culture I live in. It's where you place me. It's how I was raised. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and lusts whose object of that desire is not following Christ, but following our own whims. And he's drawn away and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, he gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, gives birth to death. Well, God, what does that mean? Is it wrong for me to want to have more stuff? Is it wrong for me to want to provide a better living for my, for my wife? Is it, is it wrong for me to do the things that the culture says I should do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, verse 16. Every good gift, everything that you have of value, everything that you provide, and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Why? That we may accumulate for ourselves? No, that we might be the kind of first fruits. Of his creatures. All right, Lord, now that you've settled that, 
how do I live internally? What, what, am I, what am I supposed to do with all these feelings that I have? Verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. How do I live now as a follower of yours? Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And what is that word? And I'll quit with this. It's the word of his kingdom. It's the very message Jesus proclaimed from day one. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Lord says, be doers of the word. Be Hebrews. Take it literally as a mandate from the lips of God that this is how we live. And not just hearers only. Oh, wow. So that's what that means. That's really interesting. I learned something today. I wrote it down in my book. I'm, I'm going to tell somebody else about that truth that I learned, but I never let it resonate in my own life. Because if I become not a doer of the word and a hearer of the word, I'm deceiving myself. Deceiving myself that I'm following God the way he wants to, deceiving myself that I'm somehow living the abundant life, deceiving my God that when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ and talk about all the stuff that I did that benefited me and my loved ones, that God's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself goes away and immediately forgets the kind of man that he was. I find this in my own life. I have a wonderful time praying with the Lord, and I commit my life to him, and he sees, he lets me see what his will is for my life and, and who he is and who I am. And It was just one of those marvelous experiences where we, we make vows and commitments, and maybe you write those down in your Bible, your prayer journal, or stuff of that nature, and we have this immediate fellowship with God, and he reveals himself to us, and then we leave. And then we go outside and we're faced with the same things we were before we spent time with God and we totally reject it. I do. I forget many of that stuff and I'm back doing the same stuff that I've learned to do for 64 years rather than learning to be in his kingdom. He says he immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it by yielding myself and surrendering myself and denying myself Daily, he is not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work. And here's the bonus. And that one will be blessed in what he does. It's like the Psalm 1 promise. And everything that he does will be blessed. And I'm only showing you this to just give you a glimpse of just the Sermon on the Mount and how every single area that Jesus dealt with is telling us what life is like in his kingdom. Is it simple? Yes, there it is. But incredibly hard. You know what I mean? Because your flesh fights against it, the world fights against it, your Christian friends will fight against it. For you to be sold out 100% Believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like we talked about last week, using the old bracelets. Lord, before I do anything, before I talk about it, before I say anything, before I 
even give verbiage to these thoughts that I'm having, what would you do? Because if I'm a follower of yours, if I'm, if I'm surrendered to you, then everything that I am must flow through you. It's not the way I think about those things. I'm supposed to have the mind of Christ. As a matter of fact, the way I think about those things should be transformed and renewed by the changing of my mind once I surrender myself to him, Romans 12 talks about. And I'm telling you, in this first Sunday of 2020, if you will just have the desire, that's all we do, if we have the desire, he will meet you in a way that you can't imagine. One of the most encouraging passages to me was the passage of Nebuchadnezzar after he had offended the Lord greatly and God was being judging him because of his pride. After seven seasons, seven years, he was out in a field eating grass like a wild animal. Do you remember the story? King of the universe at that time, of the, of the earth at that time, like some crazy man. They, they, they was a crazy man. They would look over the wall and they would see him out there. And, oh, man, you know. He'd be doing everything out there, probably nude. You know, by the time he was covered with hair, and some psychologists even said that's an actual physical ailment that he had for seven seasons or possibly seven years because of this great sin that he committed. And the Bible says, I love this, that when he came to himself, like the prodigal son, all of a sudden it dawned on him, you know, my, my father treats his servants better than I'm being treated. I'm a son. You know, I, I came to myself, and this is crazy. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to humble myself, and I'm going to ask my father to just take me in as a slave, and my life will be better than it is now. When he came to himself, the scripture says that he looked up. That was it. Do you remember? Looked up. Bam! God restored him. Everything. Then you've got this long, like eight hour or eight verse praise of Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm firmly believed we'll see him in heaven. No matter how bad you've messed it up, then when you come to yourself and say, you know what, Lord, I do have a desire. And my desire is to, I want to follow you by your terms. I, I don't know what it means to deny myself. I, 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 I mess up daily. I don't, I don't even know what this means, but I'm willing to just trust you and look up and acknowledge who he is. God will honor that and he will fill in everything that you're lacking. It's just a desire. I can't do it for you and you can't do it for me, but it's ours for the asking. Amen? So this year, right now, ask him to show you how to have that desire, no matter what, come what may. Let me pray. Father, thank you again for your goodness and your grace and all the things that you've done in our lives. And Lord, I know that, I know that in my own case, I only know what I've been taught. And I only know what I've seen. And Lord, if the, if the temperature of the church is lukewarm, that's all I've known. That's, that's all the examples that I've seen. But Lord, I know you want something fiery hot. And Lord, if I have a desire, my wife has a desire, my children, my grandchildren, my friends, my brothers and sisters here have that desire that you are no respecter of persons. 
and you will bring about an incredible revival in all our lives for those people who earnestly seek after you. That if we seek after you with all our hearts, with that kind of desire, your word promises you will be found. Lord, would you drive in us a hunger for this abundant life that your word talks about. Not as we defined it in 2020, but how you defined it in your word. And would you change us? Just give us that desire today. And we'll trust you for the rest. In Jesus' name I pray.